0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series we've been doing during the work-from-home period featuring leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we really try to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our SALT Conference series uh, that we do in Las Vegas every, every year and then internationally as well. And our goal at those events and on these salt talks is to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts and provide a platform for what we think are ideas that are shaping the future of, of business and policy. And today we're very excited to welcome Jim McCann to salt talks. Uh, Jim McCann, if you don't know him is a very successful entrepreneur, business leader, author, and philanthropist, whose passion is helping deliver people smiles. Uh, Jim's belief, in the universal need for social connection and interaction led him to found uh, 1-800-Flowers.com, which he's grown into one of the world's leading floral and gourmet gifting companies. Jim's strategy for growth has included an effective combination of birthing and acquiring new businesses and brands that resonate with customers for their gifting and celebratory occasions. Uh, Jim is also deeply involved in philanthropy and especially devoted to helping individuals with developmental disabilities, which includes his continued work as founder and chairman of Smile Farms, which is a 501c3 organization established in 2015. Smile Farms provides meaningful jobs in agricultural settings to young adults and adults with developmental disabilities, allowing them to master new skills, experience teamwork, contribute to their community, and importantly, uh, take home a paycheck and the dignity that comes along with that. In 2018, uh, Jim established Clarem Holdings, which is a private holding company that expands market opportunities for clients by providing capital along with an extensive network of high tier support partners. Jim also serves as the director for Amiris and International Game Technology PLC, as well as a variety of private and uh, not-for-profit board seats that he sits on. Just a reminder to all of our audience today uh, that if you have any questions for Jim during today's Salt Talk, you can post them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's SALT Talk again is Anthony Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Hey,
1: John, thank you. And uh, Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining us. You're uh, Long Island uh, strong, which I love about you. Unfortunately for you and I, I think this is the longest I've spent on Long Island since elementary school, Jim. And so, uh, but before we get started on the business side of this stuff, tell us a little bit about the personal side. I think you just have this fascinating story about growing up in Queens, what the family was like, and how you found your way into the flower business or the floral
2: business. Sure, uh, John, thanks for those uh, kind remarks, uh, even if they were too many. The, uh, the story of my story is a, a simple one, uh, not terribly different from yours, Anthony. Uh, we grew up in South Queens. My dad was a, a small businessman. He was a painting contractor. Uh, I'm the oldest of five children and in my neighborhood uh, uh, the kinds of uh, role models we had were uh, uh, public servants, uh, public service workers, uh, policemen, firemen. Uh, we had a, a shopping area main street called Liberty Avenue where we had a lot of retail shops and, uh, and of course we had some other characters who were uh, who were uh, in another business, a family business too, only there were five families in that business. And that was not a path we wanted to follow. So I, growing up, I thought, you know, I'd either work uh, like my dad did in a small business or my dream was to become a policeman. Along the way, uh, you know, you make life's decisions and it changes your optionality quite a bit. Uh, Mary Lou and I married very young, we started a family very young. And uh, uh, I uh, I was, uh, uh, my, I've only had two really career kind of jobs. Work, I worked for my dad as a kid, I worked in retail, uh, working for my dad, I learned how to do that stuff. So as a young man, I'd buy a, a house and fix it up and sell it, or I'd buy a little commercial building and uh, fix it up and rent it out. And, uh, but both of my real careers, so first was as a social worker, and then the second was as a florist. Uh, My all came from bartending, which is a genetic requirement if you're an Irish Catholic from South Queens that you make your way as a bartender. And working as a bartender in Queens, a a good friend of mine was a customer. He worked in this home for boys, he ran a group home. And every time he'd come in, I'd ask him all about it. So one time he uh, called my bluff and said, why don't you come have dinner with me and the the guys at the group home. It's in a very, very tough neighborhood, 10 teenage boys, 14 to 20 years old, uh, living in the house and lo and behold he, ch- he challenged me and said well if you think you'd like to give this a try after dinner you're on duty tonight and you flip me the keys well you know that was the start of a 14-year career at st john's home for boys which frankly i loved and it was terrific for me i wasn't good at the job at first but i learned to get along but the, the things i learned about myself and and people and what makes people tick are the things that i try and exercise today uh, it was putting small groups together and rooting for them and setting boundaries and trying to get them to see that they could accomplish things that they didn't expect or appreciate that they could on their own. Uh, and then rooting for them along the way, setting goals, making it fun, and, and uh, letting them know that they were cared for and, in fact, loved. And uh, so uh, I had that great career. But the challenge in being a social worker is that uh, in a not-for-profit world, you don't make very much money at all but meet a lot of good people doing the genuine good work. Uh, lo and behold, I'm now at 24 years old, the administrator of the home. Uh, uh, so it wasn't a 24 seven job like it was when I lived in and ran the group homes for a few years. And I found myself attending Barney Upper East Side of Manhattan on Friday and Saturday nights to supplement my income, you know, one of those bottle flipper guys. And I had a, a, a customer a regular would be in there every Friday, Saturday night and stay late and he owned the flower shop across the street told me he was going to be selling it and i thought geez flower shop where i grew up there was a guy had a big flower shop on the corner seemed to be quite successful it was retail You're working with people so i asked him if i couldn't work there a couple of saturday afternoons before i went to the bar and he said sure but why I said, well maybe i'm a buyer so i did that a couple of saturday afternoons and liked it liked how you were working with people at celebratory moments in their life I asked him how much he was asking for the business and he told me $10,000. Well, I had just sold a building in Brooklyn that I had a $10,000 profit on, so I thought it was uh, serendipitous. And I uh, I bought that flower shop. And I bought the flower shop, Anthony, not just to be a florist, which of course I became, but also to uh, build a business. So I, uh, I I didn't give up my full-time job at St. John's right away. I kept that for a few more years so that everything I had in the flower business, I could reapply and open up more shops. So I'd open up another shop every six months and then uh, then every quarter until I had to leave St. John's had accumulated a, a, a chain of shops and realized that there was no economy of scale at owning multiple shops and uh, said to myself, I got to find a better way to grow this business.
1: Your, your vision at that time though was to have small flower shops potentially or Your vision at that time was the mega scale of what you ultimately became an international brand. Explain your vision and the incrementalism of your entrepreneurship, Jim.
2: Yeah, I didn't know, you know, I didn't go to, uh, didn't get a good business education. I told you I thought I'd become a policeman. So I went to John Jay College, which is a wonderful place to go to school. But as a psychology major, it didn't exactly train me for business. Uh, But uh, I just thought if I built it big enough, it would, it would get to be valuable. So I had 40 or so shops by that time, and uh, and I realized no economy of scale here. Uh, I wanted to have, you know, I was playing with small shops and then big shops, what made the difference. And uh, back then, it was ancient history, Anthony, but back then on TV, everyone was trying to get you to remem- remember their 800 number. And they'd spend a fortune. I remember Sheridan Hotels, had a campaign where they'd have singers and dancers and kick lines getting you to remember 800-325-3535. So one person remembered the number, but I thought, geez, if you could only spell out the number, you don't have to do that much to get people to remember your number. And I found the company that had in it that assigned number. And I, being a, a street kid from Queens, uh, the company was in uh, dire financial straits. They were broke and there was nothing left of it. And uh, it was based in Dallas, Texas at that time. And I figured, why waste all that money with lawyers and accountants and bankers and do this diligence thing? So uh, I, uh, this wise guy skipped all of that and wound up doing due negligence, right. bought the company to get the 800 number. There was nothing else left in there. And uh, then discovered, uh, because of my uh, uh, naivete, uh, that uh, I'd, all the I accumulated two million dollars that I could put my hands on to buy this company, which I did. And uh, then I found out I had another seven million dollars in debt that I had just signed for personally that I didn't have any idea about. So I had great motivation to get up in the morning and try and build the business. <laughs> sure. But I did have this 800 number now, and it changed how we uh, operated the business. So that was our primary access modality. I changed the name of the stores to 800 flowers. Didn't have capital, I, everything I could accumulate or borrow I had just put into this company. And now I had to market it and pay off this debt. So I started selling the stores off to franchisees who were better suited to be operators of these stores uh, because they. Uh, uh, fit, this is a family business. It, that's the economics of it it should be a family business. Yep. So I took the capital from selling the stores off to build up the brand and then had uh, some good fortune and some wonderful accidents that happened along the way. Uh, so that we became a brand, uh, we became the brand in, the, in this in this small flower business, and we changed the way the industry works. And uh, that, so I'm ten years, eleven, twelve years into the business at that point. Um, my younger brother Chris just graduates; he's the youngest of the five of us. The, I'm ten years his senior. He just joined the business, and uh, uh, after he graduated from school, and uh, and so that gave me some more bandwidth, and we decided to grow it out. But because we had just changed a flower business with no money, just an idea and a novel, then novel way of approaching the business, we were paranoid that, hey, what's the next technology that's going to come along that could knock us out of the box? So I think that became part of our DNA, uh, and in particular, Chris being interested in the technology side of things, we were always looking for what's next. So in the early 80s, uh, excuse me, in the early 90s, uh, we had our website and it didn't much matter because no one could find you. We were the first online florist in AL Well, So we became to be, uh, part of our culture is to be early uh, on technology, early adopters, and to try a lot of new things. And that's, that's served us as, as a culture now for, for 30 years. You're, you're,
1: uh, I, I, and I've heard you speak about it, but I'd, I'd like you to speak here about it. The, the floor, the flower business, the celebratory business is a, there's a pretty steady eddy nature to it. And you and I both know, cause we live in this area, whether it's Falconers or Manhasset florists. I mean, these places I've been here since I was a little kid, Jim, they're not going anywhere. And they, they have this sturdy stability to it. Just Describe that to our listeners for a second. The
2: uh, oh, it, remarkable
1: nature of the of the business,
2: and, and those those are people who are our partners. So we partner with the best florists in each community around the country. In fact, around the world, and uh, so we're their we're their front door. Uh, how people can access them, and and they can come to us. We still have stores. Uh, we have uh, obviously eight hundred number, but ninety five percent of our business is e commerce uh, over through right. the. Uh, through the online world. So the way we think of it, uh, Anthony, is we've been through five waves. First retail stores, then the 800 number, uh, then the internet and when Netscape came along in 1995 and organized the world, those websites we had really started to matter. Uh, And then then it was everything about mobile and social. So even back during the recession of 08, uh, 09 and 10, I don't know if you remember that, but there was this little recession thing happened. Yeah, and, and
1: it was a, it was a dress rehearsal for today, Jim. We're going to get into that
2: in a second. I think you're right, but uh, we had we we remained profitable throughout, but we went backwards in sales uh, two years, a, a little bit, and uh, so we had to cut back on a lot of the developmental things we were doing, but we didn't cut back on our technology spend, and we didn't cut back on our social media spend, or on our efforts in and around mobile. Uh, and thank goodness, because when we emerged from the recession, having spent a lot of money and a lot of energy on those developmental efforts, they gave us that, that fourth wave. So everything social, everything mobile. But right now, I think that we're, we're going through the fifth wave, which I think is the most exciting. My brother Chris uh, termed it conversational commerce about six, five or six years ago. He's the first person I heard use that term. But now it's, I, we think it's morphing to be more about engagement commerce. So what is it we do? Uh, we're a flower and gift company. We help our customers express themselves and connect to the important people in their lives. Uh, we do that with gifts and sometimes no transactions. But uh, we've been following our customer's pattern. So when you say we've acquired customers and uh, companies and birth companies, we do that with the idea of following the customer's purchase pattern. If we're there to help them express and connect to the important people in their lives, flowers are not always the, the, the perfect way to do that. Uh, when it is fine, we're there, and we have these wonderful partners around the country, around the world who uh, we work with and who we're tied to. Uh, but sometimes uh, our customers would go to a company like Harry and David to buy a wonderful food gift, fruit and uh, peaches or pears, and, and uh, when that company came available to us, we said, wow, our co- they're already our customers, uh, let's a- acquire that. And it had been a company that was in decline for 15 years. Yeah. And uh, when we bought it, uh, we were fortunate. Now we've had it for five years, and it's had five years of accelerating growth. Uh, and we did that with chocolate businesses and but You, uh, you made some companies. changes to
1: the company, though, Jim. Tell us a little bit. You, you bought Har- Harry and David, and it was in decline, but you made some changes. What were some of the changes that you made? Because the thing is, a major growth engine now.
2: Well, we focused on on what we know how to do and where the trend lines were taking us, uh, and that was e-commerce. So instead of uh, expanding their store footprint, we put all our efforts into building a relationship with the customers, expanding your product line along the lines that they tell us they'd like us to, and investing in the technologies to be convenient to them, to improve our delivery capacities. The product was and is terrific. I mean, we're vertically integrated there. I mean, we. We're selling our peaches now. We have a peach that's our own that's uh, trademarked Oregon, because we grow them in Oregon and they're out of this world. Uh, And uh, so the product was good, it's just as good today, maybe getting better all the time because our ag people are doing some terrific things. But we have 5,000 acres of production, but we grow the food. So uh, we're not afraid to be vertically integrated where appropriate. Uh, And so for us, it's all about e-commerce, knowing the customer, engaging with the customer. So when we talk about all this technology, Anthony, it's ironic. Back when we had one shop on the Upper East Side and we had 40 years ago, single shop, Upper East Side, we had 40 customers who really made that business go. But those 40 customers just didn't come in to buy flowers from us. They came in to have a cup of coffee. They came in to uh, ask for restaurant recommendations. They went in to hang their dry and cleaning up in our place while they ran around the neighborhood on a side. We had a relationship with them. And now the irony is that we use technology today because now we have 40 million customers. How do we effectively build a relationship with them? Our commitment is, has changed. And look, you're a business leader. You're, you're a leader beyond business. And you know, and you've taught me, frankly, that vocabulary matters. It matters how people think about what their job is, what their mission is, what they do. And it just clicked for us earlier this calendar year. We were listening to all the people in our shop talk about we have to how much it costs us to acquire a customer and how we get them to place another order. And it was bothering me that we were losing sight of the relationship. And I was chatting with uh, Meredith uh, Young Lady, who's my uh, chief of staff. We were on the phone, it was back in January. She was home in uh, uh, rainy New York. I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, Florida with a family over New Year's and uh, we're having this conversation. So she says, so Jim, what you're saying is you don't want to acquire customers. You want to acquire or earn relationships. And just when she said it, it changed how we think about things. And, and Chris now using that vocabulary to change how we behave. I'll give you a, an example That's of how we smart. market differently, Anthony. As a florist, the sympathy category is important to us. Sure. And, uh, and sympathy has been a declining category for us florists for 20, 25 years. But it's still an important category.
1: Why is that, Jim? Because of charitable contributions? Or why, why is it? Because always, yep. everyone's in lieu of flowers. Is that why?
2: All of the above, Anthony. Uh, uh, plus cremations. Yeah. you know now 50 percent of the deaths in this country result in a cremation uh so flower there's an, an event as often as there used to be uh so cultural changes religious changes geography changes in lieu of all of those things are making the declining category so we put our heads together and said look how do we market simply what do we say oh when you have a death we have really good flowers you can't do that it, it makes no sense so we went to a friend of ours uh, another guy from long island uh john tesh john's a uh, has a radio show, 350 sure. Markets. He's married to a wonderful lady, a, an actress named Connie Selica. He used John's to be an man here, right, Jim? Am I that's right. about the right John Test, CBS? Yeah, News? CBS, yeah. Host of Entertainment Tonight and a, yeah. and a very, very accomplished touring musician. And so, know John, like John. I love that he has this radio show that's all about making people's lives a little bit better every day. So I went to him and I said, John, here's our issue on sympathy, and we'd like to, market on your show, but I don't wanna buy any ads. He's like, what? I said, sympathies is an important category for us and what we would like to do is use you and the relationship you have with your audience to initiate a dialogue with our community around the subjects that are hard to talk about. So people you would know, I I gave him this example, another friend of mine also named John, uh, called me one night and said, hey, if you guys are getting together for dinner tonight, are you going? I said, yes, it was a Wednesday night. I said, yeah, but John, I'll be a little late because a family uh, lost their dad in our neighborhood and I was gonna stop at the Fairchild's uh, 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 Chapel on the way home, pay my respects. He said, you know, I, knew, I was thinking about that. I knew them too, but I, I didn't think I knew them well enough to go. And I said, John, let me, let, me, let me ask you to pause there. I said, you know, my sisters and brothers and I have been in the front of the room too many times. And I can assure you, John, that we never once said, geez, that person didn't really know us well enough to come here to pay their respects. I said, on the contrary, we'd always say and think how nice of them to come and pay their respects. It makes us feel so much better. Amen. Very and well said. 10 minutes later, he calls me back and says, you know, thinking about what you said, I'll meet you there. I'll tell them we'll both be a little late. And I told that story to John Tesh. And I said, so let's have a conversation with your audience about how do you handle expressions of sympathy when, when, uh, uh, when uh, Nadine in the workplace, his dad passes away, and he's returning to India for the services. How do we as a group express ourselves? What's appropriate? What's culturally appropriate? So we've been building this, this conversational, uh, uh, massive uh, uh, information, and serving it up to our customers on our website. So we never say buy flowers. We, we just have this conversation. John tells us, that in the two and a half years that we've been doing this together, his audience has never been more engaged on a single topic. So I think the lesson for us was it's about engagement and about serving your audience. If you serve them, if you're doing something with no uh, ill intent or no uh, commercial goal in mind, but doing it uh, in a service kind of environment, you'll earn the due consideration when a purchase is appropriate. And so that's how we've been changing all the ways that we interact with our customers. And uh, in fact, we're kicking off a big new research program because frankly, COVID changes everything. And especially seeing, now how many people have you known in the last five months where you, there's been a loss and you, you guys uh, would have gone to uh, sure the service, but now they're telling you uh, we're having a private family ceremony and uh, we'll let you know when we're gonna do something else. So right. all the rules are changing here. And so we're gonna pull in all the experts and the public and our community and say, what are the new rules? What's the new uh, uh, appropriate ways to express and connect, and especially at a, a, a sad moment like a, like a loss. So it changes how we think about quote unquote marketing.
1: Well, listen, I think it's a brilliant insight. I'm glad, I'm glad you're sharing it with everybody because at the end of the day, uh, the less transactional we are, the more relationship driven we are, the more we're, we're comfortable expressing our vulnerability to each other, the tighter the relationships get. And then you can ride it out with each other in these periods of difficulty. So, so I, th- I think it's a brilliant insight. Uh, let's stick on the COVID-19 thing for a second, Jim, because, uh, you know, you and I have had conversations not live like this, but in your backyard, where we've talked about the impact of COVID-19, the impact on the airlines, the impact on New York City, the city we love, our neighborhood here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about how we pull things back together, and what do you think happens over the next 6, 12, and 18 months?
2: Well, I think uh, I think everything gets turned upside down here. Uh, let's, let's look at the big macro trends, what's going on. I, I had a conversation back in March with one of my friends and hero, uh, a guy you know well, Henry Kravis. Yep. And we were chatting on a Sunday afternoon about what, what's this gonna mean? And you know, when, when you get to chat with really smart, thoughtful, nice people like that, you hang on to every word. Mm-hmm. And what we agreed to, we were trying to guess at what happens. And we agreed that the three big macro trends that were, were going to at least hit the pause button were globalization, urbanization, and the sharing economy. And Mm -hmm. we see that with WeWork and Uber and Lyft, they're they're having their struggles. Well-run companies with great, they'll they'll make it through, but they have to rethink how they do things. But those three big trends are put on pause. And then on the other side, what are the other big trends that you've spoken about in in this program uh, many times, and uh, and I've uh, learned a lot from those conversations. Uh, So real estate is changing dramatically. That that pause on urbanization has caused this suburban rural flight. Uh, I remember in the beginning of this, Adam Hamp, who's one of my board members, said second, third, and fourth ring suburban around big cities will benefit. I said, you said second, not first? Because we live in the first ring, Anthony. He said first ring is already too expensive, right. and, uh, and, uh, and the taxes are too high. So the guy who would like to live on Long Island, let's say Dix Hills, just into Suffolk County, the reason he doesn't, well, he would like to be there because the houses are bigger, there's more land, and the taxes are lower, and the school systems are still really good. But he's got this hellish commute. If he or she has to go to Manhattan, it's just a forever commute. Right. So he's forced to go in closer. But now it's not so troubling a commute anymore if he only has to do it one or two days a week.
1: Or doing it in this period of time, Jim. You know, I, I, I'm getting into the city 25 minutes from our our town, which is only 17 miles away. Yep. So, so yeah, no, the th- thing things have changed. Um, is it? But now, but now in-
2: the other trends emerging: nesting, yes, cocooning, and Faith Popcorn cra- crafted yeah. that term back in the 90s. But some of the mental health professionals are t- talking about it now as being a negative thing.
1: Mary Lou of- still likes you, Jim, or she's just tolerating you at this. Point you know, point
2: we learned point? that uh, that we actually like one another. <laughs> Every once in a while, she speaks to me. It's, uh, it's we had an anniversary last week, and uh, how many years you married, Jim? Forty-seven. Uh, God bless you. I told she, you we married young. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and she and she's still speaking. I don't. I don't get it. And more than that, we have three grown kids. Who you know, well, she lets she lets me in the house. So I take that as a good sign. She still. Well, likes me. she did make you take your shoes off. Yeah, that, that's true. I and mean, she did stick me. In,
1: she did stick me out in the backyard by the bird feeder. But that's fine. I, I we got to be careful that.
2: in this environment.
1: So, so your 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 future of bricks and mortar
2: retail, Jim. What do you think? Well, you and I had banks. that conversation. Yeah. Uh, uh, back in the backyard, there we talked about the great acceleration of COVID, and it said we said then everything that was going to happen in the next five years in terms of e-commerce and and place-based commerce retail uh, was going to accelerate five years and five months, and here we are at five months, and you know we weren't uh, great seers, but it's exactly what's happened. So retail is going to continue to struggle and get crushed. Interesting stories in the last few days about. Uh, about uh, Amazon talking to uh, about some Sears stores and some uh, JCPenney stores that they might wanna use as distribution or warehouse facilities. So you're gonna see this ugly uh, gyration of retail being repurposed. Uh, So I I think uh, stores are gonna continue to struggle. I I think we're in this situation like we're in now for probably another year. Uh, I'm hopeful, Uh, I've seen your your, uh, reporting on what's happening in treatments and with vaccines and I'm, the, I'm on the board of one of the big health systems in New York and I, so I stay very plugged into it. So I, I think some great things might come from this. You know, We're spending mm-hmm. hundreds of billions of dollars to find a vaccine, the first time man will have ever had a vaccine for a COVID right. For a disease. Right. So I, I, I wonder if after that, after we get three or four or five vaccines that we're using that we're comfortable with, that they test out properly and, and knock this thing down, that's going to take another year. Uh, and we have yeah. 45% of us nudniks running around here in the United States saying we're never going to take a vaccine. So it's going to take that time to work its way through. But yeah. in the meantime, the restaurant industry is decimated. Hospitality, airlines, sure. uh, and retail in general are going to have a, a, continue to have a very, very tough time. And look, we're about entering this very important season for us, uh, the holiday season. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we were just, uh, the team was meeting in the last few days at Flowers about Halloween's going to be very different. Back to school is already crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Grandparents' day is in March, September 13th. A lot of grandparents like us, I get to wave to my grandkids. But the biggest threat I have now to my grandkids when I get to see them in person is, hey, if you don't watch out, I'll hug you. (laughs) I wonder wonder what the long-term effects are on on kids' and the relationships no, with it, it's true. I mean, parents, I, the young kids,
1: this is long periods of time, five months for a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, long periods of time. I, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey in a second, Jim, but I want you to address this before I do. Uh, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Disability Act that was signed by President George Herbert Walker Bush. Yep. And you have been an unbelievable champion to helping people with disabilities. And I want you to talk a little bit about that charitable effort of yours and how it's being impacted by the pandemic and where are things going for you in in that realm of your life.
2: I think you're right, Anthony. I think it's having an enormous impact on the disabled community. But even before you think about how hard it is on the people of the disabled community, one of the things that has me concerned as a, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a a business person, is this terrible epidemic that I first became aware of in December of 2018. And it's this loneliness epidemic. Mm -hmm. And a couple of terrific young editors in the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece back then, December of 18. And the the story front page, lower center of the uh, front page was uh, baby boomers, my generation, the loneliest generation. And and then it continued for two big pages inside. I read every word of it and I've read it a dozen times and and had a chance to correspond with them too. Uh, Great uh, thinkers. And the journal has been on this theme now for a while. And certainly the big healthcare companies, I think of United Healthcare in particular, Cigna, all realize that this loneliness epidemic has a real consequence in terms of healthcare, healthcare outcomes and disease. And you know, they uh, Signor and United Health will uh, postulate that uh, someone who's suffering from loneliness, or it's more serious, one depression, is fifty percent more likely to have very serious health uh, consequences, not just mental health. So they have a vested interest in working on this, and I think it's also their good citizenship that has them investing so much time and research here. So these two editors in the journal said that boomers were the first generation to have divorce in any great numbers, uh, to move away from where their family systems were for a better place, uh, to uh, be estranged from the children, perhaps because of divorce. Uh, We were the first generation that really embraced diabetes. So you you put all these things together and we're living longer in spite of the disease. And so we're running out of our money. We didn't save enough. We didn't have pensions enough. So you put all of those things together and you have people in poor health Uh, without means, living by themselves, detached from their family. 27% of baby boomers, uh, women, 27% of women never married or or, uh, don't have a spouse or a child. And so the the social networks are strained. But not to be outdone, uh, the the millennials and Generation X and Generation Z are all claiming, so Generation Z, the youngest kids, 22 and below who grew up digitally, Anthony. These are the people who are so comfortable with devices and all the social media networks. 79% of them say they're lonely, and don't have any significant relationships in their life. 20% Amazing. of them say they've never had a single friend. So as, as much as we think we're connected, and we're not. And I'm concerned because it has consequences for us as family people, yep. as business people. And then if you add on top of that, people with disabilities. So you and I are fortunate enough to live in a nice community and we're right near a, a, f- a friend and a hero of mine. He runs a place called the Visconti Center. His name is John Kemp. And I think of him when you mention the Americans with Disabilities Act, because he worked very closely with Senator Kennedy on, the, on drafting that legislation 30 years ago, which has made an enormous impact in people's lives. But he was telling me just recently, that his, you know, he cares for uh, kids in a, in a vocational training and educational environment. So he has about 120, 140 young people. 99% are in wheelchairs. Many of them have to use a breathing tube to activate the wheelchairs. But he had me emotional about their consequence during this time. School is a lot more a place to go to learn for them it's about it's a raison d'etre it's why they get up in the morning it's their whole of their socialization so many of them and he's extremely concerned about their mental health being in that uh, apartment by themselves now for five months talk about being afraid of not having enough food or uh, or uh, health care or medicine never mind the social interactivity So I think it's having a devastating impact on people with disabilities. And I think we have to be mindful of that and be overt about doing things to reach out and connect. And I think these holidays are gonna be so different. Thanksgiving is gonna be so different this year. But if we just say, ah darn, it's gonna be horrible. I loved when the family would get together and all the people around and the kids and it's just gonna be miserable. All right, I give you a, a minute or two to have that feeling but then we have a responsibility to ourselves, to our family members, to our co-workers, to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and say, it's going to be different, but it doesn't have to be bad. We can make it good. We have responsibility for those around us. And so well, you know, maybe we were constrained by how many people we could get around the Thanksgiving table by how much you could cook or how much room you had. Well, we're not gonna be so constrained this year. So who else should we be inviting to participate in the Zoom carving? and the Zoom preparations uh, to, uh, to make them realize that you want them to be a part of your community. I think we have, a, think we have an opportunity, I think we have a responsibility to think outside of ourselves and mm-hmm. how annoyed we are that it's not perfect and think about how do we make it good and how do we make it good for people beyond just us.
1: I mean, you know, just listening to you speak, Jim, we, we, it is so obvious why you're so successful in the flower connection, gratitude sympathy business i mean it's a um you're you're doing an amazing job i'm going to turn it over to darcy uh he's now going to big foot us with his young stardom jim so just look out okay but he's he's coming in strong now with some uh questions from our viewers. it's not bad enough he's
2: young he also has too much hair
1: yeah he's got well i'm okay on the hair side certainly (laughs) relative to you let's put it
2: that way he's
0: invested a lot in that that main (laughs)
2: So, what is it, about twenty twenty five hundred dollars a month on hair care products that I hear? Uh, well, that would probably be on the
1: low. Light. That would probably be on the low end. Jim, okay? But my, all of my hairstylists and dermatologists have signed
2: confidentiality agreements. So let's just be clear. Did that no, happen during those famous eleven days?
1: <laughs> well, I was losing. I was losing hair. That was one of the reasons why I
0: had to
2: go so quickly.
0: You you, you talked about uh, school and how school is such an important time for young people to socialize, and that socialization is part of their education. For businesses, it also feels like work and the collaborative environments that exist in a lot of businesses are are part of not just socialization that's good for people's mental health, but also creativity. There was an article, I can't remember what outlet it was in, about how you know, the, the work from home has allowed people to maybe achieve a little bit more work-life balance in some cases, but it affects people's creativity. What do you think the future of work is? Do you think that the migration to the suburbs, the second, third, and fourth wave suburbs is a permanent phenomenon? And how do we how do we, cre- we create a framework for work that you know allows people to have that balance, but also factors in elements like creativity, teamwork, and things like that?
2: Uh, John, I think the uh, essence of your question is absolutely spot on. Uh, the, uh, this changes everything. Uh, take me. I'm an old fart here. Uh, I, I never thought I could work from home. But, you know, five months in, uh, uh, I get up in the morning, I start working. I stop working, I go to bed. So I, I figured out how to do it. I, I do have to figure out how to be more productive and how to spend the time on the right thing. So there's things I have to learn. But uh, I'm never going to be jumping on airplanes like I used to. Uh, thank God this technology was here, but how about a third of New York City school kids, one third, who don't have access to technology? Are we all kidding ourselves saying, oh, the spring was fine, they did remote, pat ourselves on the back? When a third of the kids who live in public housing don't have access to the internet, we're kidding ourselves to say these kids are getting educated. And, and never mind the socialization part of it. It's, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily painful to see what's happening. I think over the next month or two, you're gonna have fits and starts. You have to have a very high tolerance for ambiguity. And as employers, it impacts us too, because uh, the gal who's a digital marketing guru, who has two kids at home, lives suburban, and now uh, one kid's school is starting, the other one's gonna be remote, this one's doing two days a week. So we have to be a lot more flexible and a lot more creative. And I heard my brother uh, working with the management team on this just yesterday. How do we build constructs that allow people, some people are dying to come back to the office. Well, we've reopened, but it's very light in terms of attendance. So it changes everything. I will never jump on airplanes like I used to. Uh, I won't be going out to dinner five nights a week like I used to for work. Uh, I'll eat at the home a lot more. So nesting is very much, it has to impact what products we have, what products we sell. Our Harry and David Gourmet Foods business is exploding with demand. Well, the whole business is, but in particular, the prepared meals, because by the way, I love having David chicken pot pies, because they're real easy bump, you pop them in, they're delicious. Uh, they're They're not calorie free, but they're delicious. So it changes everything, how we eat, how we dress. Anthony, when was the last time you bought one of those famous beautiful suits of yours?
1: Well, I don't even know if I can fit into them anymore, yet, Jim, because I've been eating all the Cheryl's cookies that you send me. So, thank I don't know you. What's going to happen? You know? <laughs> but it changes my fashion. taylor. Thanks you because he's expanding my waistline.
2: Look what's happened to the champagne industry. Without international travel, weddings, all these celebratory events, the wine business is booming, the booze business is booming, but uh, champagne, is considered to be much more celebratory. Uh, yeah. There's 100 million bottles of champagne just in yeah. Champagne, France. Storage that won't be sold this year. So, Anthony, if you can do your bit and order a couple of cases, just help them out. Well, I'm going to order a couple of cases for you when the Mets get sold, Jim. Okay, (laughs) thank you. We're going to to be back at your house in the backyard when that happens. Pick a scare boy, don't you? (laughs) 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 So, I think it has, John, I think you're right, it has consequences in every way. So, our job is to, as as family people, as business people, as community uh, involved people, is to try and guess at those changes. Cities. Look, old people like me, kids move out, you get an apartment in the city, why? We love pubs, restaurants, live theater, live entertainment, retail, all of which are on their butt right now. So the cities will come back, it'll take a while. It's gonna take some, we'll have to fall before they come back. It's gonna take some inspired uh, municipal leadership. And I see that around the country. I see it in Providence, Rhode Island. I see it in Cleveland. I see it in Savannah, Georgia not seeing a lot here in new york which as anthony mentioned is extremely important to us yes but uh, so technology is going to play real and cities will get younger because the cost will come down they'll be create a lot more residential units old retail out of repurposed office space uh awful off- but i'm worried about an aftershock here so i said you got to look to the future the aftershocks are coming and what i mean by aftershocks is i've spoken in the last month to six or seven CEO friends of mine who run big companies, and they're all telling me the same thing. We have way too much space all around the globe, physical real estate, and we have way too many people. So I'm concerned, I saw just yesterday that there have been 130,000 IT professionals laid off in the last 30 or 45 days. I'm afraid that a lot of people said, oh, I work for this big company, we got this huge balance sheet, I'm in IT, nothing to worry about, and all of a sudden, in January, they find out that their department is being reorganized to be more efficient because their company has been challenged on the revenue side of things. And they had to figure out a way to be more efficient. And this uh, guy or gal is sitting out there going, oh my god, I thought it was safe. And I'm not. So I think there's a second wave of, of uh, shocks coming there. And it's, uh, how, how, does the, how does the transit, we have to figure out a different way to finance the transit system. Uh, Sarah Feinberg, who's running the MTA, she's the interim chief of the MTA very smart, very sophisticated. But I asked her, I said, Sarah, if, if half the workers in Manhattan, not New York City, but just Manhattan, are service workers, so they have to come in. And the other half have now found out they can work from home at least some of the time. And what's, what, what happens if they, uh, if they come in one day a week less? And her concern was not only is it a multi-billion dollar hit for the transit revenue, but what about the shoeshine guy? What about the, uh, the uh, guy who works on the deli counter? What about the barista in Starbucks? If, if you have uh, uh, 10% fewer workers every day in Manhattan, and I think that's unbelievably optimistic that it would only be 10%. So it's gonna have tremendous consequences, and we need thoughtful, engaged, uh, incredibly uh, brave leadership now, and I hope we see it emerge.
0: Well, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. You're another one that we could have on for three hours and we would still not get to cover every topic that we wanted to cover. So we'll have you back on hopefully in a few months and in the coming years to see how these aftershocks play out and the next waves of innovation that you drive at 1-800-Flowers, which is sort of the way you drive your, your worldview into the success of your business. I feel like you could be successful in so many other areas. And I know you're investing in some other areas as well, which hopefully we can talk about next time you're on.
2: Great, John. It was uh, good to be with you. I'll pay attention because I need ideas from you and the guests that you've been having on to try and guess at where the future will go so that we can adapt.
0: Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, We weren't able to do our in-person SALT conferences, which I believe you've been to in the past. And it's been sort of a blessing in disguise that we've started doing these SALT talks and it's allowed us to expand our audience beyond you know, the number of people that we could gather in an auditorium in Las Vegas or in Abu Dhabi or in singapore we've been able to broaden our scope and have a lot more interaction so it's it's been a lot of fun
2: and well, i've 've heard Anthony say this about this this time out this pause it's caused you to think about your group your attendees much more as a community now that you have this more regular contact. And I think, no, that's no a, I think that's a positive that's going to come out of this for all of us.
1: No, no question. I think I think it's an interesting what you said about engagement at your business. We're going to steal some ideas from you as well, Jim. Thanks so much. And uh, hope to see you soon. And uh, uh, we're going to get you at one of our live events. We got to get you on that stage again, Jim.
2: Keep out of my backyard.
1: All right, and if and if you're not nice to me, I'm gonna come over to your house and hug you, okay? Maybe I'll scare you and Mary Lou, okay? <laughs> you be well, sir, okay? God bless. Thank you, pal. All right, bye-bye.